never came. Today, we had uh, about 120 families. Man, it was... It, I have to tell you, I, I, God had to have a little conversation with me because I was getting a little grumpy because we had all this food. I, I'm going to say that again. I was getting grumpy because we had all this food. Like, his abundance poured into this place. We were overflowing. We had no idea where we were going to put it all and how we were going to distribute it. And I was grumpy about that. I wasn't sitting there going, God, your abundance has overflowed into this place, and we have no idea what we're going to do with it. We have so much to give away. I had to have a little conversation. God had to like, hey, man, uh, you notice what I'm doing, right? So it was really amazing. I, I cannot thank you guys enough for everyone that came out and helped. Thank you. Give yourselves... Yeah, and Wendy and, and um, uh, man, it was, it was great. Karen, oh, yeah, you're here. I didn't know if you were going to come today. Yes. Uh, but yeah, Wendy and Karen put in a, a ton of work um, to, uh, to, to do all of that, and thank you guys very much, and thank you all the volunteers and everyone that makes it possible. It really is an, an amazing outpouring of God's grace, and I, I just cannot, it brings me to my knees every, every time we, we have food bank that his that he would just fill this place. And that uh, I was talking with one of the volunteers. His, his name is Mick. Um, he, he doesn't go here, which is, I, I think, kind of the best part. He actually goes to, to Monument View. And he still comes and he volunteers here at Food Bank, which is absolutely fantastic. But he was telling me a story that um, he has a, a neighbor, and uh, she's a, an elderly lady. Um, she's in her, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, she's, well, no, no, the reason I say that is I'm, I'm wrong. She's not, she's, she's not that old. She's um, in between 50 and 60, and I, I know, I'm there, believe me. I know, I knew the hole I was digging. I know. I know. I, I deserve it, believe you me. My, my mind was, my mouth was running faster than my mind, believe me. But, um, let me tell the story, I promise. Uh, anyway, she's, uh, she's still uh, capable of working, but she's not. She has, she has cancer, so she has been sent home, and, and she's living on disability, which is like $300 a month is all they have given her. And so she's living on $300 a month. She's living in a basement apartment, and Mick, God bless him, he saw her, found her, and he said, no, 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 this is not going to do. So he has been delivering, hand-delivering, he and her son, his son have been, have been uh, taking food to her, and he said, when I brought food over to her, she started laughing and crying at the same time. She had no idea how she was going to take care of things that month. She had no idea how she was going to make it. And suddenly God just, just poured out into her life, and she knew she was going to be okay. And he's like, that, that's why I come here. That's why I do what I do. And those are the lives that are touched. Those stories should, should remind you that that is what is happening when we when try to be the hands and feet of Jesus, when we step out in faith, when we step out in ministry. That is the result. And I'm super excited. So uh, Michael Hernandez is here. He's going to be here next week. So Nathan and I are, are both going to be gone next week. Ed and Linda are going to be gone it's going to be a really strange, the berries are going to be gone. It's going to be a really strange church next week. I'm actually really excited for this. Um, I, I'm actually really bummed I'm not going to be here, so we'll have to listen online. Um, Becky and I are going to, to scout camp, so we'll be in South Dakota. I'll tell you how hot it is. I've been there before. It's hot. But we're going to be, uh, we're going to be tent camping. See, that's why I bought a, a camper, was so that I could not use it. 
so that I can go camp in a tent for a week. Anyway, but I wanted to, with this, with next week, I actually wanted you guys to, to take a moment and to think about something because there's something that's happening right now, specifically in Canada. Pastors are being arrested. It's, it's the oddest thing um, that they are actually going door to door arresting pastors if they're holding services on Sunday. They're even using drones and helicopters to find church gatherings. So they're, they're sending out these helicopters and these drones to look for people gathering, even if they're gathering out in the woods or gathering at someone's house. They're looking for these gatherings, and they're, they're arresting the leaders that are, that are doing this. And they say, we're going to have an unusual Sunday, but I want you guys to think about it, and, and don't put it off on someone else. You think about what you would do next Sunday if Nathan and I were, were arrested, if the building was seized, that's what they're doing. They're, the military is actually going around and seizing buildings. They're putting up fences around them so the people can't get in. If that happened to us, what would you do? What would your next Sunday look like? Do you have the contact info of your church family that you could reach out to them that without Nathan and I in, in play, could you guys still gather together? Would you still gather together? Could you still be a church, or would you scatter to the wind? Not that that's going to happen, and we pray that it doesn't happen, and we are thankful that we live in a place where that hasn't happened, but it's still a good exercise for us to think about, to think about how we would still act on a Sunday if suddenly we couldn't go to where we usually go and we couldn't do what we usually do. The only announcement I have really is, is August 29th is Fifth Sunday. We'll have potluck and communion for that. The other thing is um, please keep uh, Brother Walt in your prayers. He is uh, still in the hospital. He's actually been moved to rehab this week. He had to have a, a second surgery, but he is recovering from that, and I think they'll be able to move him to rehab this week. But please keep on praying for him. Um, his hip surgery has definitely had a, a longer road than they thought it was going to. So um, I say please keep praying for him. And like I say, it's going to be less than a, well, we'll close on a month, and we'll be right back into school. The kids will be back to school, and we will be back to uh, the, the Tuesday evening Bible studies and, and the Sunday evening Bible studies and all of that. Um, so please, like I say, just keep all of that in the back of your mind. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for yesterday. Thank you for holding me accountable. Thank you for letting us gather together in your name. Thank you for your word. We've got, got our Bibles open in front of us. We're going to open up to John here. Father, please be with us as we dive into your word. We are seeking to be closer to you. We are seeking to be a church that honors your name, that actually does the things that we, that we claim to do, that seeks out the people. Father, please help us to do that. Give us the strength. Give us the courage. Break down our, our barriers, whatever they are, that we would see people and reach them in their need. And Father, let us draw closer to you. Let us take this time to, to spend time with you in your word. We're seeking your face. We're seeking your wisdom. Please open your hearts and your mind to us as we have your word open in front of us. Amen. We are in John chapter 24, or John chapter 5, verses 24 through 30. I'm going to start at verse 16. I know we're a little bit repetitive over the last couple of weeks, but we need the context, and we're going to do, start off with a review from last week. 
and I know it's kind of a slow crawl through this, but these are some pretty big, heavy topics where we're really looking under the hood of the eternal. And today we're going to have a really big topic in front of us. We're going to talk about eternal life. I'm not going to get into, uh, because we can have some good conversation. It's funny, we should have a good conversation about what we believe about hell, what we believe about our, our fate in heaven, those kinds of things. And there's, there's room for debate on what happens when we die. I'm not going to get that far. We're actually really going to stop at, at the end of what Jesus says here. So I just, just want you to know that those topics are out there and there is good conversation to be had and there's good debate to be had. But we're not going to get quite that far um, with the material that we have for today. But if you have your Bibles open, we're in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 30. And I'm going to start at verse 16, like I said. It said, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has also given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I'm going to start off, I haven't read this for you, I think it's been like two, three weeks. The whole reason that John has written this is in John 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we're talking about this. It's the whole reason why we have gathered here today, is that we may have life in his name. That's the topic for today, is life in his name, eternal life. Remember, when we started off, we started at the very beginning of this chapter. That's where Jesus went to the the pool, and he paralyzed this, he healed this paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And we talked about where the pool was within Jerusalem. And the Bethesda, that name, it means house of mercy or grace. And then the man takes his mat and he goes to the temple. And there Jesus tells the man to stop sinning. And then the man and the Pharisees, they have a couple of conversations about who healed him and why he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And we don't know about the man. 
We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he came to faith. We don't know if he repented. We don't know what his ultimate fate was, but we do know about the Pharisees. Their reaction is really not a logical reaction. It's really not a reaction that we would expect. If you see someone that's been healed after 38 years of paralysis, their reaction was anger and fear and hatred. They resolve to kill Jesus. We say that kind of casually when we talk about the Bible. We talk about this all the time, about you know, the Pharisees resolving to kill Jesus. And it's true, and they would eventually do so. But imagine what kind of depraved heart and depraved mind you have to have to see a man healed, to see multiple people healed, and to have so much anger and hatred and evil in your heart that your response is to want him dead. And not just think about it in your mind, but to conspire with your fellow believers to bring it to fruition and and mean it. It's going to be like a year, year and a half later when their plan is going to come to fruition. First, they're going to try, Jesus comes back to the temple and he's teaching at the temple and thinking, oh, we'll have him arrested at the temple. And they realize he's a little too popular, might be a little bit of an uprising. So instead, they conspire with Judas. They find Judas is, is disillusioned. And so they conspire with Judas. They bribe him, say, hey, let us know when Jesus is going to be off by himself, when he's going to be away from the crowds so that we can have him arrested and tried and killed. We need to be wary of carrying fear and anger and hatred in our hearts. Those folks were so afraid of losing their power and their position. They were angry that Jesus would contradict them. And he did so with authority. And so they hated him. They hated him enough to plan and to carry out the murder of an innocent man. We can say a lot that we're not like them. But especially now, there's a lot of anger and hatred and division in our country. There's a lot of people that the first thing that they post online is something angry and divisive. It's easy to have angry and hurtful words. We need to be careful of those. We need to reduce the number of angry and hateful words that are are hurled out into the world, not increase them. Because it's from the same heart, and those words are being spoken to someone. They're being spoken, usually, if it's on social media, it's being spoken to our friends and to our family, people that we choose to associate with. So that's a word of caution for us. But from Jesus we learn. We learn about the nature of God. God does not rest on the Sabbath like we rest on the Sabbath. And we talked about how if he did, the world would end as we know it. He is the the creator, the author, the sustainer of all things. Jesus says he and his father both work on the Sabbath. We also learn that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the master of ceremonies for everything that we do on the Sabbath. And we read this quote from John Piper, and I love this quote. It says, That's what the Sabbath is for, the restful, focused enjoyment of God. And that should be our answer. If someone asks us, hey, what are you doing this Sunday? This is what I am doing, the restful, focused enjoyment of God. And we concluded this with with Mark 2, 27 through 28. It says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So when we worship We offer praise and glory to the Father and the Son. Then we learn from the Scriptures that He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
If we flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the NLT says, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He is God's divine word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We talked about how Jesus is the best teacher. He teaches with authority. We read that in Matthew chapter 7, 28 and uh, 29. It says, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Luke 19, 48 says the same thing. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus says complete authority over life, sickness, disease, and death. John 15, 24, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. Matthew 9, 33, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Mark 2, 12, we have never seen anything like this. If we go back that 17 through 18 and all that, John MacArthur pulls it out this way, that Jesus is equal in, in person, in works, in power, specifically the power over life and death, equal in judgment, and equal in honor and glory to the Father. That's what he claims. If we go to the verses 17 through 18, that's where he says, equal in person. My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Equal in works, that's verses 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. That's equal. Whatever the son does, whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Equal in power, verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Equal in judgment, verse 22, moreover the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Then equal in honor and glory, verse 23, all that may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Those are not easy verses. There are a lot of sons and fathers in that verse. But I think breaking it apart, like John MacArthur does, really makes the plain meaning of the text clear. And we're going to apply the same study method when we go through 24 through 30. Because it continues on. 
It says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Some heavy lifting for this week. First thing I want to point out is it's okay to change your mind. There's a lot of one thing I've realized is that my doctrine, my theology has changed a lot over the last 20, 30 years. That as I have continued to study the Bible, my perspective has changed. Don't feel like because you thought one way about one thing that you're stuck that way for the rest of your life just because maybe you defended one doctrine at one point. Don't think that you can't change your mind. There are some things that we can't change our mind about. We Jesus is Lord, and we're going to go through our, the basics of that in just a minute when we go to the Apostles' Creed. Those are the things that are fixed. We, we can't change our mind about those things. But we can have conversations, and we can learn and grow about our doctrine. So we go into our doctrine of eternal life. That's what we're talking about today, is, is being raised from the dead, our doctrine of eternal life. We're talking about the Trinity. These are pretty big topics. We're not in small, we're not in small stuff. But they say, be flexible. Be willing to listen. Be willing to learn. See, we're going to talk about those fixed things, those fixed points in our beliefs, things that, that we cannot change. We're going to go to John chapter 3, 16 through 21. We know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done and has been done in the sight of God. There is no salvation outside of Christ. John 14, 16, 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? We've got the Apostles' Creed here. If you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in him, say this with me. You've got it on your, in your bulletins there in front. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Those are the fixed points. And we should be able to, each one of us should be able to know that's what we believe and why we believe it. If you have questions about that, we should have that conversation. There are things that we can, we can argue about. There are doctrines that we can have conversations about. But those are the fixed points. So last week, we talked about Jesus, about his equality with God, and that rejection of Jesus is rejection of God, and that's exactly what John 14, 6 says. There was a look under the hood of the Trinity, the relationship between God and Jesus. This week, Jesus gives us a look at part of creation, and specifically the nature of man and mankind. And Jesus tells us some things. He tells us we are eternal. He says, no, 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 you're not like the animals. There's some people in the world that need to learn this, that there's a difference between mankind and animals, and that we are eternal. That's a striking statement to make. There's a lot of people that want animal rights. They want animals to have equality with people. There are people that call their pets their, their fur babies. They, they equate animals with people, with their, with their status. And God says, no, not so fast. We're going to go to Genesis 1-1 in just a minute. But they say, he says that people are eternal. Verse 24 says, very truly, and that, that's that... When Jesus says that, I don't know your translation that you have, but that's amen, amen, when he says that. It says truly, truly, or very truly in the NLT, saying amen, amen. I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He is emphasizing the truth, the dependability of what he is about to say. So I'm going to go to Job 14.14, or Job 14.14. Man, I am stumbling today, aren't I? (laughs) Because this is something that we should have a conversation about. Do you have this settled in your mind that people are eternal, that humankind is eternal in its creation? Job 14.14, and I'm, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm grabbing just a little snippet of this. We're going to go to the full verse in just a minute, so don't turn there in your scripture. It says, if someone dies, will they live again? It's a question that Job is asking. Stephen Hawking said, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. I love Shakespeare. It says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and in the end signifying nothing. Voltaire said, God is a comedian playing to an audience that is too afraid to laugh. Stephen Fry, in a, there's a video called What Should I Think About Death? He said, some people do not like the thought of people dying and don't accept it. They prefer to think that death is not the end of us, but that we might live on, perhaps on another life on earth or another place where people are rewarded or punished. But wanting something to be true is not the same as it being true. Well, indeed, 
Unfortunately, there is an implicit assumption being made here, and that is that the notion we cease to exist when we die is the more rational stance to adopt. Indeed, not only is implicitly assuming it is more rational, but also that it is plain, obvious common sense that we cease to exist. Since many people do not profess to accept this obvious truth of our coming demise, it is hypothesized that they do not accept it because of a psychological aversion to the prospect of non-existence. Hence, against their better judgment, some people declare a belief in a hereafter. But of course, those more thoughtful people who dispute the notion we cease to exist would not remotely agree with this assumption. For a kickoff, it should be noted that consciousness itself is invisible. We only infer its presence in other people via the voluntary movement of their bodies. When their bodies cease to function at death, nothing can be definitively concluded about the consciousness which formerly was able to move that body. So what do you think? What have you concluded? Is reality an accident? The current science is to believe that the universe was created by a random explosion, that the planets and stars, even life itself, is a result of the input of energy into a randomized system of elements. That over 13 billion years, organisms have tried and are continually trying new versions of themselves, and that natural propensity has resulted in the thinking ape we call man. Do you agree with that? What do you think? See, I've never seen things move from disorder to order in my life. I've never seen a random accident create something functional. That's not something I've ever seen, but that's the foundational belief that, that our current science is saying, is that if you have a system, if you have the raw elements and you have a, a random input of energy, that something functional not only can it, but in the probability that it will create something functional. In my experience, and I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, creating something that actually works, that is actually functional, it requires some things. It requires ability. You have to have the ability to make what you're, what you're making. I can't ask a, a two-year-old to go out and make a car. They don't have the ability to do it. You have to have the intelligence. You have to have the understanding of what it is that you're making. And you have to have the skill. You usually have to be trained in making whatever it is that you're making. And then you have to have experience. Experience hones so that you understand how to make it and make it correctly and you understand what's going to fail and where it's going to fail and how to prevent those failures. That's, in my experience, how things are generally created that are functional. Ability and intelligence and skill and experience come together. Even, not, not just material things, but even relationships with other people. Advancements in understanding relationships with nature and animals. In my experience, and like I said, maybe you've had a different experience, those things require the application of ability and intelligence and skill and experience. I love river otters. I love watching them cute little guys when they slide down the, the mountain, you know, and they're eating the fish and all that. You know, they can smell underwater. They can smell fish and they can smell the mussels underwater. You see them swimming along the, the, the kelp, the, the, the ocean otters. So they know that there's a muscle inside of this shell. When they swim down to the bottom of those kelp beds and they grab a muscle, they bring it back up, but their teeth and their claws can't open muscles. They know that there's something delicious inside there. They can smell it, but they don't have a tool built into their bodies that can do that. So instead, they go and they get a rock and they put it on their bellies, their fat little bellies, and they, they crack the muscle open on their, on their chest and then they open it and then they get to eat. Think about that, what that requires. They have to understand that there's food inside there. 
They have to know that, well, I don't have the tools here, but I know that a rock is hard enough that if I grab it and I bash this against there, that it will open and then I get to eat. That's not a, a random input of energy. That is them applying what they know. They're applying their ability, their intelligence, their skill and their experience to be able to eat. And I don't know about you guys, but that's generally how I eat as well. <laughs> My wife, who's amazing, she goes into the kitchen and she applies her ability and her skill and her intelligence and her experience, and out of our kitchen comes amazing things. It's not a random accident. It takes a lot of love and care. So if we turn to Genesis 1.1, and maybe you've had the same experience where God takes all of these things. He takes his ability, his intelligence, his skill, and his experience, and he applies them to creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you believe that, or do you believe that there was a random chance that resulted? And why is this important? I mean, we, man, you kind of got way off the weeds here, Phil. I said, no, because if you don't believe in God, right, it needs to start off with, I believe in God. Then it needs to go to, I believe God created. Then, I believe God created man. Then we stand on, I believe God created man in his image. That's Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every other living creature that moves on the ground. Eternal beings. A little spark of the divine in each and every one of us. It makes the foundation of why human being is so valuable. Valuable not only to each other, but valuable to God. God is very hesitant to get rid of what he has created, what he has declared good. In fact, he enacts an entire plan of salvation to save these little sparks of life that he has created instead of wiping them out. He considers them very, very important. And mankind is different from the animals. Man is made in the image of God. Man is made to rule over or be the steward of the earth and all that is in it. It's interesting that God gives man animals. And the death of an animal is not the same as the death of a man. Think about God giving the Jewish people clean and unclean animals. Noah even seemed to keep the law of sacrificing animals when we read in Genesis about the flood. Abraham does too. He regularly builds an altar to the Lord, and he is very familiar with offering sacrifices when God tells him to offer up Isaac. They prepare the wood, and they build an altar, and they have a knife for sacrificing. But being made in God's image means having some of the divine in us, a piece of God. We were given eternal souls. You think that's a new concept? Do you think that's only in, in the New Testament when we talk about eternal life, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about salvation? That's kind of the, the counter-argument is to say, no, 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 this is a New Testament thing. If you were Jewish, you would not have ever learned about this. Yeah. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. 
There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase their knowledge. Let's go to Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. It's important when we read Job that we, we figure out who's speaking, because some of his friends give some pretty bad advice. We can get off track if we're, if we're reading Job's friends. This time it's Job speaking. It says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Wow. Isaiah chapter 26, 19. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Psalm 49, verses 5 through 15. It says, Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough, so that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. But the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, but far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Psalm, chapter 73, or Psalm 73, verse 21 through 26 says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom I ha have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Think about Jacob's ladder or Elijah being taken up into heaven. And what's funny is most people don't have a problem believing in heaven. When we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the longer I live, the more I see the Holy Spirit working continuously throughout us, through every single person, believer and non-believer. The Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us, always pointing towards God, always urging us heavenward. It's funny, is all of us, we, we experience these four dimensions, you know, the X and the Y and the Z and the, and the time. Each one of us experiences those. But we know the Holy Spirit points us to that, that at least fifth dimension, if not more, of heaven, of a place outside of this time 
outside of this place where we get to go closer to God. We've been talking a lot. I've been putting a lot of maps up here on the screen. We've been talking about historical places, places you can go visit, real people, real things. So when they talk about heaven, when they talk about eternal life, do you believe them? When John sitting there says, no, there is eternal life. You can go and stand at the pool of Bethesda right now if you want to. You can see the foundations of the churches that were built on top of it. He didn't lie about where that was in the northeast corner of the city. Do you think he's lying to you about what Jesus said about eternal life? Or do you take him at his word? Can you accept the recorded testimony of the people in the Bible about what happens when we die? Can you take it as truth? Hosea 13, 14 says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? We're talking about two resurrections. That's what Jesus talks about in the scripture. He talks about two resurrections. One, only some of us will experience. The other one, everyone will. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Dead in your transgressions. People who are outside of Christ are dead in their sins. Put that in your mind. Think about a dead thing. A dead thing can do nothing for itself. It cannot help itself, cannot call for anything, cannot do anything in and of itself. Dead bodies just sit there. There's a song, I don't know if you guys used to listen to um, uh, Sunday night radio, late night radio. They used to have a show where they, this is a Dr. Demento show where they would play all these you know, funny songs. There's a song they used to play, it's Dead Puppies Aren't Much Fun. It's true. <laughs> I know, yeah, right? They don't come when you call, right? They don't chase the ball at all. Dead things cannot do anything for themselves. And that's what the Bible says. It says, you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your transgressions. I know that's a gruesome thing, but get it in your mind. So when God calls you, he calls you to life. Then suddenly you have life. Then suddenly you have a choice. So while we sit here, when we take Jesus as our, as our Lord and Savior, when we go into that pool and we get baptized, when we call him, then we come to life for the first time. Jesus calls it a new birth. Nicodemus is flabbergasted. What do you mean I'm going to be born again? And then they have the conversation about it. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. You must be. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus." in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Dead things cannot help themselves. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So I told you that I fooled you a little bit ago when I talked about that, that chapter in Job 14. This passage in Job 14, and I love the book of Job, is absolutely remarkable. This man has no Bible, he has no scripture. He never sat down with Paul. He never did any of those things. And yet his understanding, this is straight out of the New Testament, what he says right here. He talks about how he has fallen, how he cannot redeem himself, and that no man can redeem him, that God has to be the one to purchase him, and that redeeming him, purchasing him will come at a cost. Job 14, verses 1 through 17 say, Mortals born of woman are few of days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows, they do not endure. Do you fix your eye on them? Will you bring them before your judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. No man can save himself. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put his time in like a hired laborer. At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no more. People will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me until your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. Verse 14, I, I cut this verse. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Yes, he does long for every creature that his hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. 
My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, and you will cover over my sin. We're going to use the raising of Lazarus as a, as a type for this. Because God has already done the work of redemption. God calls us to him while we are dead in our transgressions. And without God calling us, we remain dead. And we can choose to respond to the calling. We can choose the free gift of grace, but it starts with God calling. Lazarus died. There was no choice in when or why or how. The stone was rolled away. Lazarus did not have any say in that. You and I had no control over Jesus going to the cross. That was God's plan of redemption. No matter what you do, Jesus went to the cross. He was going to the cross. That stone was rolled away. Jesus called to Lazarus. Lazarus didn't call 911. He didn't send up smoke signals or tap an SOS out on the grave. He was dead. Jesus came of his own power and authority. Lazarus had no say whatsoever in Jesus' coming. But Lazarus chose to respond to Jesus' calling and came out of the grave from death to life. When we choose to place our faith, our hope in Christ, we are responding to him standing at our graves, shouting, come out! That's what it says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The faithful believer responding to the call of Christ is the first resurrection. The thing is that not everyone will respond to Christ. Some will choose their tombs. The second resurrection is the physical resurrection at Christ's return. If we turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Revelation chapter 22 says, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gate into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Luke 14, 14, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. John 6, 35 through 40, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up at the last day. John 14, verses 1 through 7 say, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We're back in our, our verse for today. John 5, 28 through 30, he says, Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is, what is evil will rise to be condemned. Everyone will experience the second resurrection. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Revelation chapter 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne of, and him who was seated on it, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up in the the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And we can have a conversation about whether that's eternal punishment or destruction. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21 says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy and drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how does this change my Monday? What do I do do with this? This whole conversation about eternal life. What do I do tomorrow? Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 20 gives us the, the clue. It says... Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral or impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them, for you were once in darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. 
But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then, tomorrow, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Amen. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one word. Tomorrow is hope. That's what tomorrow is. We have a hope that people outside of God do not have. We know our Redeemer lives. We know what comes next, and it's good things. We know that despite all of the stuff that's happening in the world, despite all of the challenges that we face, despite the the sickness and the illness and the pain and the misery, we know that good things come next. And that's how we persevere through tomorrow, that we have a hope that no one else has. And quite frankly, we need to give other people that hope. They need to see it. They need to hear it. They need to know. Because, man, they could sure use it. So many people are suffering and hurting. So many people are, are lost. They don't have hope. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you have hope for tomorrow. That no matter what happens, the, the mudslides and the earthquakes and the fire and the war and the famine, all of those things, It's not the end. That's not the end of the story. That's not how it ends. You and me, we're together. I've already written your name in the book of life. It's already done. I don't have to worry about it. Just go out tomorrow and and try and help the people around you. Just try and love on them. Just try and lift them up a little bit. Try and give them some of the hope that you have because it's eternal. It's the one thing that's not passing away. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not only redeemed us, that you have not only given us eternal life, that you have not only covered our many sins with your blood, but that you give us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to bring good things into our lives while we're here, that in all of the things that go on in the world and all the pain and the suffering and the sickness and the death, that your provision still pours out abundantly. Father, we are thankful that we have hope for tomorrow, that we can love, we can hug, we can cry, we can laugh, and we can know that our Redeemer lives, and that He calls us by name, that He stands at our graves and He yells, come out. Father, please help us to hear Him and to see Him and to run after Him and to not be satisfied until we hold him. Father, please help us to project that hope out to the world in whatever way that means, that tomorrow that we could touch one life, that someone who is in despair, and there seem to be so many that they could, that they could have that hope too, that your hope would flood out of this place, that it would pour out over this valley, that maybe our entire state, maybe the entire nation would know that there is hope, that there is something better on the horizon, that 
this isn't all there is. Please, Father, make it so. We ask all of that in the commanding name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is your spoken word. Amen.